good afternoon. <clears throat> it's good to see you all today. And it's also good to see some folks that are visiting with us. And I, I trust that the, the Lord will speak to you and encourage you through the word of God, through the songs, and through our fellowship. Um, we're going to be continuing this afternoon in our study of Galatians. We've been at it for a while. <clears throat> Thus far, we've gone through the first two chapters. And as we've seen, there was a crisis in Galatia. Essentially, the crisis was that a group of professing Jewish believers were insisting that the practice of circumcision, which was what outwardly identified Jewish males as descendants of Abraham, was a necessary component of salvation. They perverted the gospel by adding... forgot to... Uh, to uh, turn my timer off on my this thing. Okay. Um, <clears throat> they perverted the gospel by adding it to the works of the law, adding to it the works of the law, subtly teaching that salvation required more than just faith. Yes, they said the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. Yes, the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles. But there's something missing. They have not yet been fully initiated into God's covenant. So they can't be saved. And it seems that the Judaizers were not concerned only with circumcision, but with all of the works of the law. As we come to see through the book, uh, the rest of the book of Galatians, there's nothing wrong with the law. God's rules are there for a purpose. Even his specific rules and the specific ceremonies that the Jews were to practice were all intended to point people toward Jesus Christ. But they were never intended as an end in themselves. And they were never intended as a means for, a means of, or a requirement of salvation. The curse of the law is that the blessed blessings promised to the Israelites were only were conditional upon them keeping all of the law perfectly. And we remember Jesus expositing the law and coming to the conclusion in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. The curse is the word all. If you do all these things, I will bless you. When Israel received the Ten Commandments and all the sub-commandments that went with them and all the ceremonial laws, they said, Everything the Lord God has said, we will do. But before long, they realized that they couldn't do it all. Even before Moses came down from the mountain, they had already fallen into idolatry. Now we see that in Galatia, there's a group of Jews who insisted that certain works of the law were needed for salvation. It is as if they had lost sight of their own people's history and their failure in fulfilling the law. So this is the crisis that Paul addresses. The false teachers here when he says, uh, and Paul addresses the false teachers when he says that those who are bringing another gospel are to be considered anathema, accursed, literally eternally accursed. When I hear that, and then I look at what passes for uh, Christian broadcasting today, and I look what is being presented as a gospel, how it minimizes or eliminates the blood of Christ and replaces it with a love God with all your heart self-improvement program. I fear for the people who are preaching and believing that gospel. This anathema, this curse is repeated twice. It's a serious thing. Now, I believe 
God can redeem a person who repents of believing and preaching a false gospel as long, but as long as we rely on our own righteousness to justify before ourselves, before God, we are believing and proclaiming a false gospel. Until the Lord commits, convicts us of our sin and regenerates our hearts through the preaching of the gospel, we are under the curse of the law. But let's not miss out the seriousness of the matter. A gospel that adds anything to simple faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ is no gospel at all. Such a gospel does not save. It condemns. We've seen also that amid the powerful influence of the Judaizers, Paul has defended his credibility as an apostle. Paul was sent not by men, but by God himself, and he received his gospel through revelation. Jesus Christ taught him in every bit as personal a way as he had taught any of the other apostles. Paul refers to himself as the last of the apostles, the last of the chosen witnesses to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection and sent out to establish the church. Jesus had already ascended when he came and appeared to Paul in what I am sure was more than just a vision. Jesus taught him the gospel and turned his heart from that of a persecutor to that of a proclaimer. I believe that Christ met him in a very special way, even as he was in, that, in the desert in Arabia. But how do we know that this gospel of Paul's wasn't just some sort of twilight zone paranoid delusion like Muhammad's encounter with the jinn or Joseph Smith's encounter with the angel Moroni? Well, after those years, those three years, and after a period of another 14 years, he brought what he had learned back to Jerusalem, to those who had walked and talked with Jesus, to what he calls the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, and said something like this, this is the gospel. I want you to test it and make sure that everything I'm proclaiming is the exact message Jesus revealed to you. Now, I'm convinced that he had full assurance of this beforehand, but he wanted to cover every base as far as presenting himself legitimately as an apostle. Last week we saw that having proclaimed the message of justification by faith alone, Paul addressed the problem of sin in the believer. If we are justified by faith and our sins are washed away, and then we sin, does God in justifying us become a servant or an enabler of sin? The gospel message is that Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures proclaim, and was raised again, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes for us. When the Father looks down on mankind and sees the wickedness that indwells us, our sinful nature, our flesh, we stand condemned under the law. No one can be justified simply by his own merits or by his keeping of the law. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice given by God, God's only Son, as a means of satisfying the justice demanded by the law. And that justice is death. God placed our dreadful sin upon the one and only sinless man, the one and only Son of God, the one and only legitimate sacrifice for sin. Those who believe in Christ are crucified with him, and are raised to life in him. There are two Adams in scripture, 
the first Adam brought sin into the world, and all the descendants of that first Adam are dead in trespasses and sins. We cannot please God. Sin is our family inheritance. It's like a disease that moves through the generations, but it's worse than a disease. There is no cure for it. For us to escape its deadly consequence, our connection to Adam must be severed. We must be born anew into Christ. Adam is the representative head for all unredeemed human beings. Adam, uh, uh, Jesus Christ, is a representative head for all believers. He is the new Adam. And the way to enter this new genealogy is through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is the righteousness of Christ that justifies us before God. And so when we sin in the flesh, we are not condemned. If we could be righteous in our flesh, if we could just somehow perfect ourselves like Charles Finney and other Pelagians taught, the death of, our, death of Christ for our sins would be meaningless. Kind of an add-on. When a believer sins, he looks to Christ in repentant faith, knowing that the Spirit of God is at work in him, even in the act of revealing that sin. He knows that atonement has been made and the wrath of God has been satisfied. When a believer sins, Christ does not coddle the sin. He does not enable the sin. He covers it and he conquers it. I think it was Augustine who said that there were three rules of biblical interpretation. Context, context, and context. Well, so far in Galatians, I think we've seen that there are three rules of justification. Faith, faith, and faith. If you've been paying attention over these past few months, there's no way you can have missed that message unless your ears are dull or your heart is hardened. We'll continue today to talk about faith, which is the crux or the center of justification. Again, we're going to hear that justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ, not through the works of the law. Let's read now from Galatians chapter 3. Starting at verse 1, and we're going to go through to verse 9 today. <clears throat> Galatians 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit... Are you now perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, even if indeed, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that, what, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, 
Those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Abraham now comes into the picture. And Paul uses his example to demonstrate that justification is and always has been by faith alone. The Jews place great emphasis on their heritage as children of Abraham. They insist we are descended from this chosen man whom God called out of the pagan world to whom he promised the land of Israel. And because of our physical lineage and our uh, genetic connection to Abraham and our participation in circumcision, we are favored or blessed by God. Well, we find out in the New Testament just what Jesus thought about that argument. When the Jews brag about their heritage and say, we are children of Abraham, Jesus says to them, God is able to raise up out of these stones children of Abraham. That physical lineage, that fleshly connection to Abraham means nothing apart from faith. And even circumcision, the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, which was a continual reminder of Israel's separation from the world and their calling to God and by God, even that covenant, it means nothing apart from faith, apart from Christ. Romans 2 verse 29 declares that a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And even the Old Testament speaks of the circumcision of the heart. This is where God does his work. You know, when Gentiles come to God, when anyone comes to, to God in faith, God is doing a miracle. The Jews who were relying upon the flesh, upon their connection with historical Abraham, had no real connection with God. But when God brings anyone to faith in him, he essentially raises up spiritual children of Abraham out of cold, dead stones. He is bringing life where there was only death and only separation and only coldness and only hardness. God says in Ezekiel, I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. This is the gospel. Regeneration, justification, sanctification, adoption, redemption, glorification, all are completely independent of our works. Does this mean that the gospel is somehow opposed or indifferent to righteous living? Absolutely not. And that becomes crystal clear later on in the book of Galatians. Right now, though, let's turn our attention to the first verse in our text. We're going to find a series of questions here that sum up Paul's indictment against the Galatians and then we're going to see some biblical truth that Paul presents to straighten out their thinking. First question is preceded by an insult, a statement of ridicule. Oh, foolish Galatians. I've had the pleasure of spending some time in Mexico and learning a little bit about the culture there. I learned that it was a really bad thing to call someone stupid. It was almost a scandalous insult. We often use that word stupid, a synonym for foolish, without really thinking about it. But here, when Paul calls the Galatians foolish, it is intended to bite. Paul wants to stir them up, to shock them 
out of their stupor. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What kind of spell are you under? Who has taken over your thinking? Even though you're staring truth in the face, how come you can't see it anymore? I don't know if you've ever observed a hypnotist at work, maybe on television or something, but I think that's a pretty good example of what Paul has in mind. A hypnotist depends upon his subject's willing submission to his control and uses the power of suggestion to convince them of things they would otherwise never believe. These people end up doing some of the most outrageous things, and when you watch them, they actually believe what is being suggested. I mean, they can be made to believe they're sitting on a bus carrying a chicken, when in fact they're sitting on a chair in front of a thousand people acting like a fool. They're bewitched in a way. They're under a spell. The reality that is before them has been altered so that they see something else. Paul tells the Galatians, before your eyes, Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. But now there's a sense of their vision being obscured, of an alternate reality taking over their minds. And they're not seeing what's in front of, right in front of them. When God gives a believer eyes to see and ears to hear, the gospel, the death of Christ for our sins, is vivid and clear. But Paul is saying, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now very few, if any, of these Galatians, as far as I know, had been to the cross and had actually witnessed the crucifixion. Perhaps a few were Jews or God-fearers that had been on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. But the vast majority of them were Gentiles. And until they heard the gospel, they really had no frame of reference or mental picture for the crucifixion of Christ. So how had Christ been clearly portrayed before their eyes? Well, there are at least three ways that this happened, and they are the same three ways that it happens today. The first portrayal of Christ is through the preaching of the word. When we hear the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit brings that word to bear upon our hearts, there is a vision that comes to us, that is, a spiritual understanding of things to which we are naturally blind. Scripture tells us that the natural mind cannot perceive or see the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually, uh, they are spiritually discerned. So we are naturally blind, and Jesus is revealed through the Word. The whole of the law and the prophets point us toward Jesus Christ, but we need discernment to see this. Paul himself had a very specific revelation of Jesus, even though he was physically blinded by the light on the Damascus road. He said that the Lord appeared to him. When the word of God is preached, what happens is that we see the character of Jesus, the nature of Jesus. We see a, pure, a spiritual picture of Jesus and of his work and of his atoning and his propitiatory death, of his glorious resurrection and his ascension to heaven, his ministry right now as our heavenly high priest. There is such a vivid, detailed picture of Jesus presented whenever the gospel is preached. Now that's one way. That's one way that Christ is 
clearly portrayed, the preaching of the word. There are, other two, there are two other ways. And these are the two ordinances or sacraments that Jesus has given to us. One is the breaking of bread together in the Lord's Supper. Every time we come to this communion table, we'll be doing this next week together. And we distribute the bread that has been broken and we eat together and we drink the wine representing the, body, the blood, body and blood of Christ. Christ is being clearly portrayed as crucified. He said, or Paul said, as long as you do this, you are remembering the Lord's death or you are presenting the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I don't know much how much of the whole Passover meal the Galatians observed, whether they partook in, when they partook of the Lord's Supper, probably very little, unless the Judaizers had really got an influence there. They probably just um, ate the bread and drank the wine. But every part of that Passover meal, as it's laid out in the Old Testament, would, uh, that Jesus would have observed with his disciples at the Last Supper, including things like eating the bitter herbs with the lamb, every part of it had some redemptive meaning pointing toward Jesus Christ. The whole law, if you look at it properly, always points to Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, through whom we escape death and are redeemed out of the slavery of sin. So when Jesus is clearly portrayed as crucified, through the preaching of the word and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, pardon me, so then, Christ is clearly portrayed as crucified through the preaching of the word and in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And then there's baptism. The primary meaning of baptism is presented by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 as a believer's identification with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. Going down under the water, pictures are dying with Christ and being buried with him. And coming up out of the water is a picture of our rising again with him in newness of life. Rhonda and I were once part of a seeker-friendly church that put on a variety show every Sunday uh, that was used, that used drama to help people engage in whatever the theme for that morning's talk was. I wouldn't call it a sermon. By the way, that theme was very rarely the gospel. But boy, did they like their drama. Everything was geared to create a multi-sensory experience. Lights, sounds, special effects, people running around with microphones, cueing people here and there. But it was all a show. It was people attempting to do through human ingenuity what can only be done by the means that God has appointed. The only two dramas we need to be concerned with are the Lord's Supper and baptism. When these two poignant and graphic portrayals of the gospel combine with the preaching of the word, you can't miss Jesus. And if the Gentiles were observing these things as believers, so that Christ was clearly portrayed, the thing that Paul is having trouble even understanding is, who has bewitched you? How can you not see it? And you know what? I think the word bewitched is very appropriate because there are spiritual powers at work when someone comes, something or someone comes along to obscure the gospel. 
We read in Ephesians chapter 6 about the spiritual forces, the rulers of wickedness in heavenly realms. Things we cannot see. And their primary target is the gospel. If they can pervert the gospel, they think they've won. And this is what, is happen- what was happening in Galatia. An extra drama had been added to the gospel. An extra level, circumcision, ceremony. And it had obscured the truth, threatening the life and the witness of the church. All right, so that was the first introductory question. Who has bewitched you? The second question is really the main question in this whole passage. It says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So the main question here is essentially, how were you saved? We know that when we receive the Holy Spirit, that is the moment that we become regenerate children of God. That is the moment that we are forgiven. Now, in the book of Acts, when the Jews saw that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit just as they did, they perceived them, or they received them as brothers. But here comes a new teaching that's making a division between Jews and Gentiles. You know, we read in Ephesians and other of the New Testament writings that Jesus broke down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. Here come these well-respected men who are trying to build that wall again. Paul continues his line of questioning. I ask you, did you receive the Spirit by works or by hearing with faith? When the Galatians first believed and received the Holy Spirit, there's no record of anything overtly miraculous. I'm talking about signs and wonders and things like that. There was no speaking in tongues that we know of. There was speaking in tongues when the gospel went first to the Gentiles as a sign that the Holy Spirit was for everyone who who would believe uh, and had been given to both Jews and Gentiles. But that was a unique event with a specific purpose. Here's what probably happened in, uh, uh, when the Galatians received the Holy Spirit. They were sitting in the synagogue or in the gathering. And the Apostle Paul was clearly portraying Jesus Christ as crucified. And those words that he proclaimed found their hearts. And all of a sudden there was an awareness of sin. They cried out as they did on Pentecost, what shall we do? There was an awareness of God and a yearning, a desire to come to God in repentance and faith. And the Galatians received new hearts as the Holy Spirit entered and they believed the word of God and trusted in Christ. That's how they received the Holy Spirit. And if you're a believer, that's pretty close. I mean, it'll vary slightly, but you heard the word of God. It convicted you of your sin. It drove you in... in, uh, holy fear to God to receive mercy and forgiveness of your sins because his grace has been presented to you. Now, so that's how the Galatians received the Spirit. And I would would remind you that when you receive 
something, when you receive a gift, you don't work for it. Paul is using rhetorical questioning here. The answer to his question is obvious. Obviously, you didn't work for the Spirit. If anything, the Holy Spirit took you by complete surprise. And if anything, you felt unworthy, unholy, and wretched. And then God came to you with the good news of redemption and forgiveness of sins, and you believed it, and you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You received the Holy Spirit by the hearing of the Word of God, and by believing that, and not by works. So the question here is, how were you saved? I want to ask you the same question today. How were you saved? I won't make that judgment. That's God's department. I'm not going to say if you're saved or not. The Lord knows those that are His. But if you profess salvation today, I ask you in all serious seriousness, how were you saved? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? If in any way you began with works, you're still dead. And that's not meant as an insult. It's just the truth. We begin our lives in Christ through the Spirit and through hearing with faith. A gospel of example alone or of action alone is not a gospel. The gospel must be heard and believed. You cannot believe someone's actions. You believe the truth. And those per, the, the person's actions may complement the truth. And when you've got truth, your actions come along and they back it up. Paul continues, Are you so foolish? There's that F word again. And I'm actually going to combine this with the next question. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? So the first big question was, how are you saved? And the second one is, how are you sanctified? Having been begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is a really, really common error among Christians. When we first believe, the law shows us our sin in contrast to God's holiness. And we see the gospel as our deliverance from the curse of the law, from the wrath of God. The harsh taskmaster of the law propels us toward the grace of God in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Through faith in him, our sins are forgiven, and we walk in freedom, trusting him for everything. But time goes by, and we grow in grace and holiness. But somewhere along the line, we get the idea that it's our efforts that are making us grow. That it's our own piety that's sanctifying us. If we just pray more, if we just read more, if we do this, if we do that. So when sin comes along, it's like we say, step back Jesus, I can handle this. And in our piety, we inadvertently revert to works of righteousness, to works righteousness. As if Christ's righteousness saves us, but now our own righteousness perfects us. Before we know it, we are striving and failing to fulfill the law of God the same way we did before we knew Jesus. 
We, do, we delude ourselves into thinking that we somehow add merit to what Christ has already done. Or that we can sanctify ourselves. This is dangerous. And it's exactly what Paul is warning the Galatians about. Sanctification is the act of being set apart by God and being progressively conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Sanctification is every bit as, uh, as much a work of God as salvation is. When we yield to him, when we obey him in our, with our new heart, we desire righteous things. Our old heart never desired those things. We just wanted to avoid the wrath at the end. That's about it. We didn't love God before we were saved. So the question is, how are you sanctified? How are you being sanctified? Is it the work of God? Or is it your own work? Again, the question is rhetorical. It is God's work. Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13 talk about sanctification. It starts out like this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds an awful lot like work to me. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Sanctification in one sense, in the sense of our being conformed to the image of Christ, is the working out of our salvation or the cultivation of those holy attitudes and deeds that flow out of our faith. Now, when you read scripture, don't ever read one verse at a time. It takes, uh, uh, it takes, pardon me, it says very clearly, and if this were your only verse, you'd be in trouble. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But let's read the next verse, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do the things according to his purpose. You see, God works in us, not only helping us to do those things, but even creating the will to do them. We can't take credit for that. And the error of man-made religion is the act of taking credit and saying, I am worthy because of my performance in this or that. I know it's not perfect, but it's got to be enough. That was Paul's old world. That was the Pharisee world. And he was completely convinced of his own righteousness. He was a zealous believer in the work of the law. That's what the Pharisees did. They tried to break the law down into simple, manageable pieces so that everyone could fulfill it theoretically, fulfill it perfectly. And their only hope for Messiah was that when they got everyone fulfilling the law, when they got everyone to observe a perfect Sabbath, for example, then Messiah would come. Can you think of what a weight off of Paul's shoulders it must have been when he realized, oh, it's not a work of my flesh. It's something that Christ does in me. It's a new nature. It's a new creation. Let's talk about this thing called the flesh for a minute. The flesh in Paul's terminology is that which is in opposition to the Spirit of God. When we look at the law and we think that Righteousness is just keeping all these rules for the strength 
of our flesh, that leads to all kinds of ugly things. The flesh is opposed to God. So Paul's statement is here is, are you going to be perfected by the flesh? By that which by nature opposes God? Are you going to be per- perfected by that? It's like telling an addict, if you just have, a new, uh, have enough willpower, you can overcome your addiction. Well, what's his problem in the first place? His will wants to do that thing. If you don't believe what I'm saying, that the flesh opposes God, turn over to Galatians chapter 5, where Paul gives us a good description of the works that accompany the flesh. You might wonder, well, this little infatuation with the law, is it really so bad? Is it so wrong to do my best in the strength of my flesh to keep the law? Look at here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, at the things that accompany the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I have warned you as I warned you before that those who do think such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, the flesh by default seeks to satisfy its own desires, even legitimate ones, in ways that are illegitimate, ways that oppose God. So it's absurd to think that through the flesh we can please God, that we can somehow be made perfect. All right, let's go to the next question. So far, Paul has asked, how were you saved and how were you sanctified? The third question is, why did you suffer? You might remember from the book of Acts that Paul was in the province of Galatia when he had been stoned and left for dead. It was the Jews of Galatia that committed this act. Now, when the Galatian believers first came to Christ, they also endured all kinds of persecution. It wasn't easy to be a Christian. And they endured it willingly. Fast forward a few years, and here they are seemingly ready to throw it all away to separate themselves from Paul and his gospel as if their suffering was all for nothing. Here's Paul's question. Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? In other words, what was the point of the the suffering for Jesus if Jesus wasn't the complete answer? I mean, if it's just about your comfort and your social standing, well, then it makes sense to cave into the Judaizers, doesn't it? It makes sense to cave into the circumcision and just go with the status quo and do what it takes to fit into society. Why did you suffer? Christ's way is so different. The new life of faith, this new creation is so different than the old fleshly way of living. Why did you suffer is really quite a practical argument. Paul wants them to look back at the early days, their first love their first love relationship with Jesus. He's urging them to remember this first love and how they would have gladly and willingly suffered anything for the sake of Christ. And now here they are acting like what Jesus did wasn't enough. And rather than suffer for him, they're going to tolerate and embrace a distorted gospel. 
I want you to try to imagine being in the Galatian church, the Sunday that this letter was read out as the sermon. It's what I'd call a scorcher. I mean, anathema, bewitched, foolish Galatians. And there's more coming later on. These are harsh words. It's a far cry from the narcissistic affirmations that come from many of today's pulpits. All about your best life and you are loved no matter what and all of those things. People come to church, by and large, to be affirmed and lifted up. And that's wonderful if the gospel is being preached and you're rejoicing in the gospel. But what about the times when you get nailed right between the eyes? When the word of God reveals sin that you've been harboring? Friends, that's a blessing. It's a blessing when someone comes along in the authority of the word of God and brings a rebuke. It's a blessing. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Doesn't feel like a blessing. It hurts while it's happening. But it's because God loves us that he does these things. So this question about suffering, I think, is a reality check. Paul is not saying that these people are not saved. He's saying these ideas, these hypnotic suggestions that you're falling for, I want to alert you that the, to these things because they've completely marred and obscured the gospel. Really, what he wants to do is clear their vision so that they can see again the Christ that they first believed. They can see again Christ clearly portrayed as crucified. Let's go on to the next question in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing the hearing of faith? The basic question here is, how are you supplied? How is it that when you call upon the Lord and when you come to him in repentance and faith and when you come to him to confess your sins, how is it that he keeps on filling you with the Holy Spirit? Do you have to work for that? What does Jesus say? He says, ask. In Luke eleven thirteen, 13, Jesus says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to all who ask Him? It's not a payment for services rendered. The Holy Spirit is a gift. Who's the source? The Father. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will send you another comforter. But he who supplies you with the Holy Spirit, does he do it by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Again, it's sort of like that first question. You know, did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law? Well, the answer is obvious. So how are you supplied? Same way, by the hearing with faith. And now let's talk about miracles. Galatians. Do you, perform, do you form miracle committees and plan church work bees in order to manufacture miracles? No way. God is sovereign and he wants, if he wants to do a miracle, he'll do one. Miracles are gifts from a gracious God to his beloved children. The Galatian church witnessed Paul raised up from the dead, uh, raised up after he'd been stoned and left for dead. Did they have anything to do with that miracle? Or was it entirely a gracious act of God? Essentially, Paul is asking, 
is Jesus somehow dependent upon your works to give you these things? Does God need you to do these things? Can you possibly do these things without him? Absolutely not. All right. So we see that Paul was, has really backed the Galatians into a corner. But now let's move on to see how he corrects the false thinking that he has just exposed. He's done a great job of identifying uh, this false thinking with these rhetorical questions. He's like a prosecuting attorney. I don't know if you've ever seen or read a legal thriller, but the, lawyer, the prosecuting attorney will see things like, didn't you do this? And didn't you say that? And isn't it true? And because of all these provocative questions, the truth eventually comes out. Paul's relentless examination hopefully has left their hearts in a place where they are ready and willing to receive the correction. Now, in the ESV, verse 7, picks up in the middle of a sentence. It says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. <clears throat> this verse takes the Galatians and us right back to the crux of justification. Abraham believed God. That's faith, isn't it? You can read about Abraham's faith, and we read about it this morning, in Genesis, this afternoon, in Genesis chapter 15. God says to Abraham, Fear not, Abram, he was still Abram then. I am your shield and your reward shall be and your reward shall be very great. Abram says, and I'm paraphrasing, what reward is there for me since you haven't given me any kids? And my heir will have to be one of my servants. God replies, This man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Look toward heaven. And number the stars if you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. That's when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now Abraham's faith encountered some potholes along the way. He listened to his wife Sarah who was barren. And he went along with her fleshly scheme to bring forth an heir through her handmaiden Hagar. That blunder had consequences that, the, that are still being experienced and felt in the world today. But ultimately, the promised son Isaac was born of Sarah in a complete miracle that could only be attributed to God. It would be through Abraham's offspring, not through the line of Ishmael, the son of Hagar, the child of the flesh, but through Isaac, the child of promise that all the nations of the world would be blessed. Of course, we know that that promise was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the offspring of Eve, who would crush the serpent's head. And the offspring of Abraham, the one who would bring blessing and salvation to all nations. He has purchased men for God from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We see here the principle that righteousness is reckoned by faith. Just as Abraham's faith was reckoned or counted to him as righteousness, sinners are declared righteous when they believe in Jesus Christ, trusting in his atoning work and his promise that all of our sin is taken away, his promise of eternal life. The sins that were as scarlet become as white as snow. 
And this is through the agency and work of Jesus dying for our sins, rising from the dead. Okay, so we see that righteousness is reckoned by faith. Second, we read in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Remember Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. He told them, you're no more sons of Abraham than these stones. Just as righteousness is reckoned by faith, sonship is secured through faith. It's the only way. Your genetic pedigree means nothing. Your observance of rituals means nothing. At one point, the Apostle Paul calls on the young pastor Timothy to rebuke his church for keeping track of endless genealogies as if they mean something. You see, in Christ, there's a whole new genealogy. In the second Adam, it's a whole new start. There's a whole lineage and a whole inheritance coming. And it is for those who are not born of flesh, but those who are born again by the Spirit of God. So righteousness is reckoned by faith. Sonship is secured by faith. Let's look at verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Okay, don't read that verse too quickly. It is loaded. Let's read it again. Let's, it says, the scripture. Now, did Abraham have scripture that we know of? Oh. This is interesting. Just listen. And the scripture foreseeing. How does a book foresee something? Does a book have eyes? Does a book have intelligence? Let's read, read it all together. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying. Now look at the subject that is doing the action here. It is the scripture that is foreseeing, and it is a scripture that is preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Isn't that interesting? Moses hadn't even written Genesis yet. But isn't the word of God called the eternal word? There's such an interesting connection here between the scripture and the Lord himself. It was the Lord himself who brought the gospel to Abraham. Abraham understood and believed in the gospel. It's called the gospel right here. Abraham came to God in the same way that we come to God. He came through faith. And you know, I think Abraham had a whole lot more knowledge than we even realize. He was called the friend of God, after all. He believed that when he took Isaac to the altar, he would actually kill him and that God would raise him from the dead. That was the depth of his faith. Do you think he maybe understood the gospel? Do you think that he understood that salvation is a work of God? Do you think that he believed that God could bring life to someone who was dead? So the scriptures preached the gospel. But in our outline here, the key concept is that the Gentiles are justified also by faith. This justification equates to sonship, to being a child of Abraham. It isn't something that's reserved for only one group of people. 
Everyone who comes to God through faith in Jesus Christ is brought into this privileged place of sonship. Do you know that if physical connection and physical works were the means of salvation, there would be no point in preaching the gospel to Muslims because they're physical descendants of Abraham. And they practice circumcision as zealously as the Jews do. Externals are not the issue here. They don't matter. It's faith, trusting in Jesus. Okay, I'm going to finish very quickly with the last point. At the end of verse 8, it says, In you, that is in Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. Now, if you read it in the context there, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that the scripture preached to Abraham. In you shall all the nations be blessed. Look at verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So our last point here is that believers are blessed through faith. We receive the covenant. We receive the fulfilled promise that Abraham was looking forward to. And we are justified by faith along with Abraham. You want a simple version of the whole letter of Galatians? Here it is. We are justified by faith and not by works. I mean, it's a simple concept. But Paul belabors it because it is one of the most difficult points for a proud human to understand. There's a verse in chapter 6, verse 15, that really sums up the whole book well. It says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We become a new creation when we trust in Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. And this comes by hearing with faith. I trust that you've heard the word of God today. And I trust that the scriptures have preached the gospel to you. If there is anything you're adding to the gospel, if there's any teaching that you're believing that says you've got to add something else to the atoning work of Jesus Christ for your salvation, just be aware of the danger, the curse that accompanies that kind of thinking. Don't be bewitched. I encourage you to respond to Paul's painful but loving call to wake up and see the reality of Christ clearly portrayed as crucified and come to God through faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that it frees us from the tyranny of the law, that it brings us out of a land of captivity into a land of freedom. And Father, that your word indeed does its work and the Holy Spirit brings to life dead people. We're not dead stones anymore, we're living stones because of what Jesus has done. We pray that we would fully embrace the grace that is the gospel. And Lord, that this grace would indeed teach us and move us and instruct us toward the good works that flow out of regenerate hearts. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have a closing song at this point and then we'll have a benediction.